Hey, hey, this is TJ Murphy, and welcome to another episode of Adventurous Entrepreneurs. My guest today is Eric Berglund. Eric is a dedicated entrepreneur, husband, and father who strives to maintain a balance in all aspects of his life. Having worked as a sales leader for a multinational company for almost a decade, he became frustrated with the constant need to micromanage his team and found himself losing time and headspace that could be better spent on his passions and with his loved ones. This experience inspired him to develop the REACT framework for accountability, which he teaches in his program, The Language of Leadership. Through guided coaching and facilitated practice of these skills with peers, Eric helps leaders develop the language of leadership habit, empowering them to build effective teams and earn back their time. Just a few of the golden takeaways Eric shares in this episode are how to hold your people accountable, steps to becoming a better leader, and the power of cultivating a community that pushes you to reach new heights. So without further ado, this is Eric Berglund and me. Welcome to the Adventurous Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Murphy. Since quitting my corporate nine to five and starting a business while backpacking through Asia back in early 2017, I've had the privilege of learning from some incredibly adventurous entrepreneurs. Through these conversations and my own journey, I've learned that much like in life, entrepreneurship is an adventure. On this podcast, I explore the journeys of top performing leaders in their fields. These wide ranging conversations include tactical business advice, how I built this insights, lessons in leadership, life hacks, travel stories, favorite hobbies, and insights into living a purposeful and joy-filled life. Adventures await us, so let's dive in. Hey, hey, Eric, welcome to Adventurous Entrepreneurs. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. Good to see you. Dude, man, it's great to have you on the podcast. I've been excited for this conversation ever since we first met a couple weeks ago, but even more so since I joined your webinar on how hmm. to create accountability within your team. And you know, some of your own words here go from uh, just do it myself to my team barely needs me anymore. Things are getting done without me even knowing about them. And you know, ultimately you, you shared some amazing insights on creating freedom in your business that allows you to scale and regain sanity as a leader. So we'll be going deep into all of that here in a second. But first, I'd love to start with just a little bit of background on, on you and your journey. So can you give us a little bit of that background and ultimately what led you down this quest that you're currently on to answer the question, what do I say to hold someone accountable? Yeah, I'll, uh, for the sake of the time that we have, I'll actually zoom out a little further than, than maybe normal. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to run my first business in college. I ran a college pro painters franchise wow. and uh, at a young age, got a taste of like, work less, make more, be entrepreneurial, like control your own destiny. And I did that for five years and, and thoroughly enjoyed it, took some great skills and experiences away from it. And one of the things that happened in that time is that I got certified in coaching and I, I finished college pro, I finished college and I came out of it at 22 and I was like, I want to be a coach, but I'm 22 and I look 12. Yeah. <laughs> and so Who's going to so, hire me? <laughs> so I went to, I went to some, some friends who are mentors and coaches. They bought and sold a few businesses. And, and I basically said that to them. I go, guys, I, I want to do what you do. But even if I'm right, nobody should listen to me right now just because of my experience is pretty limited despite this skill set. Like, how do I get there faster? And their advice was, well, go get a few more years of sales experience. You'll either fall in love with a career or you develop a skill set you'll use for the rest of your life. And I, I bought into that. I went and used that. So I, I went and I developed a sales career. I sold insurance products, 
from a bad company. And then I sold insurance products from a good company. And then I worked for Yahoo. And then I ended up at the company I was at for the last decade, managing a sales team in the construction industry, selling it to, as a manufacturer to contractors and all those things. And so along that journey, I loved coaching. I loved the ability to just by speaking with somebody, change them, right? My degree is in education. I'm supposed to teach math, chemistry, and physics. And I learned by running my own business, there's just no chance I'm going to go be a teacher. But, but the reason I wanted to do that is that moment where you impact someone's life, right? Where you actually do something that someone else is empowered by and they go do whatever the heck they do with it. I'm, I'm really fueled by that. And that's one of the things that turned me on to coaching so much. And so as a leader of this sales organization at a, at a multinational billion and a half dollar organization, I bumped into a lot of hurdles. I had this coaching skill, but here I was leading adults, not leading 19 year olds who need to make beer money uh, yeah. or pay their, you know, pay their, pay for their books or something. And it was a wildly different experience. I found that the skills that I had were insufficient. Um, and I was frustrated by a lot of things. You know, you sat through my webinar, you know, you heard me talk about them. I was frustrated by how can you do other people's work for them? You know, I would have people call me and say, can you close this deal? Can you come to this meeting with me? And not only would they want me there, but I'd do the prep for it and I'd build the PowerPoint for it. And I'd build the presentation and discovery questions. I would do all these things because that's what I knew how to do. And I, I was just frustrated by that. I had too big of a territory, too many people that worked for me. I was tired and frustrated all the time. And so I was fortunate enough to start reading some coaching books. I was reminded, oh yeah, I love this coaching skill. Maybe I should level that up a little bit. And I dusted off my college pro manuals and started <laughs> trying those skills. And again, I found them uh, helpful, but insufficient for this task of leading professional salespeople, adults who make more than you. Um, they just weren't the same thing. And so I started looking for resources and I, I read a book called Coaching Salespeople into Sales Champions that is really what blew my hair back. And Keith Rosen's the guy who wrote it. So I chased down Keith and asked him to be my coach and convinced my company to pay Keith for me because it's very expensive. And they said, yes. And so for four years, I had the pleasure of working with Keith and along the way leveled up those coaching skills. And what happened was, is that my team started doing better. They started selling more and I started feeling a little bit more like, okay, I'm where I should be. Like I'm, I'm doing this. Okay. And because of that, I started to get kind of bored, not because the challenges weren't there, the opportunities weren't there, but just in that um, complacent employee way. If I look back at it now, I'm almost embarrassed by it. Like, man, I had so much opportunity and so many things I could have been doing better. But what I was seeing was I can't get promoted again, or I don't want the promotion that I would get. And therefore I'm going to leave. And so I started interviewing different companies. And the thing that really, the short version of the answer is this next part where I went to this final interview with the CEO of this company and he sat across from me and he asked me a super simple question that rocked me. And it felt like I'd just been punched in the gut because here I am 33, 34 years old. I've been leading my team for five or six years at this time. As I said, I ran a business before. I had all this experience in leadership. And the guy looks at me and he goes, Eric, how do you hold your people accountable? And when I say it felt like a gut punch, it's, it took the wind out of my sails. I was like, uh, I, I froze, you know, and salespeople don't freeze often. And I definitely froze. And I gave some terrible answer and I didn't get the job, but I came back and was just haunted by it, TJ. I just felt so inauthentic. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you just have, you know, we all have imposter syndrome to some degree, especially uh, if we're trying something new or we're pushing or pioneering in some way. Yeah. 
but I, but I wasn't pioneering in some way. I was doing a job I should have been good at. Yeah. And so I had you were this, in, you were in your element. Oh, yeah. And I thought this feeling of like, Oh my God, am I just a horrible failure at this? And then I had this sneaking suspicion that maybe I'm not the only one that can't answer the question. And that's really where my current business started is I started asking other people that question. I started just simply having as many meetings as I could with people, leaders, business owners, partners, distributors, sales managers. It didn't matter what they did. And I just would find my way to asking them that question. How do you hold your people accountable? And what I observed from them is what gave me one of the early indicators that there's a market for what I do now. Because what I observed, it, it plays out better in person than it does virtually. But what I observed was this. People would say, I'd ask, you know, how do you hold your people accountable? And this is what I would see. Right? I saw people shrink away from me, clench their abs. I saw them make a shirking face. I could tell they were puckered up and a little defensive about it because they didn't know. And some people would rattle and say, oh, we've got really good incentive plans. I talked to a lot of sales leaders. And so they'd say, oh, we've got good incentive plans. So our people should be motivated to go and be accountable to these things. And I'd hear that and think, well, my people have awesome comp plans. And I know that they're not. So I don't think that works. And I, I had a hunch that that wasn't sufficient. And then other people would say, well, we've got really clear KPIs, right? We've got a clear scoreboard or key performance indicators. We measure really well. So everybody always knows what the score is. And it's very obvious if you're not performing well. And we had those metrics too. And so I had 16 people and maybe three of them would be motivated by that. And the rest, I still didn't have the answer to the question of what the heck do I do with these people? And I realized along the way, I was asking the question wrong, TJ. I was asking, how do you hold your people accountable and getting some of these vagaries? What I really wanted to know was what do I say? No, you lead people, whether they're a whether they're employees or contractors or vendors, a lot of us have some sort of need to hold people accountable. And what I really wanted to understand was when that person doesn't do what they're supposed to, either at an outcome level, right? They don't hit their sales quota or they don't get you the report on time or at a process level, they don't make as many phone calls that day as they're supposed to in order to get down the road to their eventual outcome. What do I say to that person? What words should I use human to human in those moments, because what we want to say is, why didn't you do it? And what the hell? And what happened? You know, we want, what <laughs> happened and why? And what I found is that that's not productive. That didn't work. People get defensive. They make excuses, especially if you lead salespeople. We're slippery folk. We get away from those things and dodge deflect, it easily. Deflect, right? deflect. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the origin story for my business is that one question that led me to look around and go, am I the only one that struggles with this? And then to slightly refine the question and go, well, what I mean is when I'm leading a person, I'm using words, I'm speaking with them, or I'm slacking or texting or typing with them. What should I be saying in these instances? Because what I was experiencing, guilt, shame, blame, all of the negative things we associate with accountability wasn't effective for me. And when I pantomimed that to my people, it wasn't effective. And I realized there needed to be something different. And so I'll, I'll pause there because that was a lot of me talking at no, you, but that's like that the origin great. story that, that prompted me to pursue what I do now. And, you know, it's again, necessity is the mother of all invention. Yeah. I needed to do better as a leader and there wasn't any resources out there. I'll, I'll add these last two points. I asked my coach, hey, Keith, what do you got on accountability, right? This guy's written two global bestsellers around sales and sales leadership. And he pointed me to a paragraph this big in his book. And it was valuable, but it, it didn't answer my question. And I asked my boss, Hey boss, how do I hold people accountable? You use this word all the time. Yeah. How do I do that? Right. That's who we should go to is the authority person around us. And his answer was, well, you got to measure where they are and show them where you want them to go. And then 
hold them accountable to getting there. It was a very cyclical answer, right? So I, I didn't get any but good how? guidance. From, <laughs> yeah, but how? But, but how? And that's what I've built now is now what I've built now is the how. It's the how of accountability. And what I think really leadership anchors in on is the language that you speak. And that's why it's it's called the language of leadership. So that's the origin story. Yeah, I love it. So much to unpack there and definitely going to get into a little bit of the how. But I'm curious because there was a stepping stone in between or a couple, but after over a decade of leading sales teams, you you were an executive coach and, and a, I believe a partner in a company called Coachwell, where yeah. you helped business owners scale their companies and, and prepare to exit them. But that venture ultimately did not succeed. And I'm curious, yeah. were there any lessons around you know, partnerships or, or scalability that you took away from that experience that you have been able or you know, you're applying right now in, in your venture currently? Yeah, great question. Insightful question. Definitely. I was fortunate enough to find Coachwell as a bridge for me to leave the company I was at. Essentially, I'd internally developed a coaching model that I used for my team. And then I started coaching other people at the, the previous company I was at. And I had eight or 10 people that I was doing recurring coaching calls with every other week as if they were clients. And they were just other leaders in the company who struggled with these same things. And through that process, I had refined my own coaching system and process and style and all of those things. And I felt like I was ready to leave. And Coachwell was a good bridge for me for that. I found an opportunity to go become a coach for an existing successful company. Mm -hmm. And um, and as you said, it, it, the partnership didn't end up working out. And I learned a few lessons from that. One is that it's really challenging to, in an interview process, um, decide you want to be partners with somebody. And that doesn't even necessarily even touch if there are major character or, or, or trust flaws or anything like that. It's just, it's just hard. It's not even if there's some looming negative, it's just really difficult to develop that level of um, understanding of each other that, and making sure your visions are really well aligned in a short amount of time. And so for me, it was a very good bridge solution. It got me out of sales leadership and into coaching. And I think it was effective for Coachwell while I was there, but ultimately I wanted different things. And so did the, the, the partner there. And so it just didn't end up working out because it's pretty tough to date that quickly and establish the level of partnership. Um, the second thing that I learned just being fully transparent about business models is that building a coaching or consulting company is inherently going to be limited by scalability. Almost every coach or mentor, advisor, consultant I know really relies on referrals and warm, warm networking as their primary path for developing business. And that's not bad. We all should be doing that. I mean, I met you through networking, right? Like I, I'm a huge proponent of driving business that way, but you can't scale that. You can't throttle that. You can't decide I need five more clients next week and go apply pressure in their exact right place with a level of predictability that you need to really build a business, not a practice. And if you, I don't know if you've ever read the book, the, the Thought Leader's Practice or not, but it does a great job of breaking out the distinction between a business and a practice. You can definitely go build a practice on that model because you can, you can be very high ticket. You're not relying on scaling and, and having other people replicate pieces of your production and you can definitely be a thought leader, which is what they orient that around. And what I realized in this process is I wanted to build something bigger than that. I wanted to build a business because I think the language of leadership and the problem that I identified is global, or at least uh, at least North America centric, if not global. Oh, and, sure. and therefore, I want to be able to scale it. And if you go build a coaching company where you're relying on just high ticket one-on-one -on -one coaching engagements, 
you have to have some sort of digital way to find those clients. And that's very difficult to do. It's a very crowded space. Everybody on LinkedIn is a coach or consultant or mentor. And so I just realized that that model isn't something that I want to go replicate a whole bunch. I can, and I still do coach, but I really wanted to find a way to build a business that had some scalability to it, that I could hire people to perform functions and then use my own language of leadership to lead those individuals to run a business unit that developed a return outside of my participation in it. And so those would be two big observations for my time at Coachwell. Partnerships are very challenging to vet quickly, and uh, you should probably date before you, you propose. And scaling a coaching or consulting company is going to require a digital presence. And if you don't have a really unique or repeatable way to do that, you're going to struggle to add new clients and, and add other coaches because of it. And so I needed to define a different product. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And I admire that going into it, you, you know, designed the business that you wanted a business by design rather than going with the mold that most people would doing the one-on-one -on -one coaching and then finding a way to create, you know, a digital product and scale it out from there. So let's, let's bring that forward to, to what you are focused on today, the language of leadership. Can you kind of describe what it is and yeah, we'll go from there. I have lots of questions yeah. from that point on. But <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, as I mentioned, the origin story of it is around that question of accountability. But as I started to unpack how you hold people accountable, I learned a couple things. And it really built the five pillars of the language of leadership that I use in my course in my academy. And that's that it's a whole lot easier to hold people accountable if expectations are clear and agreed upon. And so a portion of holding people accountable revolves around how you set clear expectations. And so that became one of the key pillars. What words we use to hold people accountable is, is the second pillar. Like there are ways that work and there are ways that don't. And if we don't change the way we think about accountability, we're going to have a really hard time using the right words. And so accountability is one of those pillars. But then what if I hold someone accountable often, Eric? What if I use your system and they still aren't accountable? Well, then we need to be able to have conflicts. And we define conflict as an egregious or repeated violation of expectations. Think about that person you've had the same conversation with five times and they still aren't doing whatever thing it might be. That's a repeated violation of your expectations. And then think about someone who's maybe violated one of your values, treated a customer poorly, lied, done something like that. That's an egregious. It doesn't have to be done multiple times. It requires conflict, which necessitates immediate change. So I needed to define a different model, a different how for what we do to hold people or have conflict with people. And then if you think about that across the employee life cycle, you set expectations, you hold them accountable, that doesn't work, so you have conflict. Well, you have an underperformer. You have someone who's chronically underperforming, either in a measurable way or in an attitude way or some, some distinct way that you need to either be able to turn that person around and fix that quickly or confidently separate from that person. I had, I had three specific people on my team that I led when I was at my previous company who really shouldn't have been on the bus anymore. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with them. Well, the crazy thing was eight years after I got promoted to that job, they still were there. And I didn't have anything I could do about it. My boss and my company didn't want to take action to get rid of these people. So I didn't, I didn't know how to change them. If I would have, I would have done it over eight years. But I also didn't have the authority or confidence to go, you know, I'm done with this. I'm pulling the plug. I'm not putting up with it anymore because they were just in that mediocre level where it was difficult to, to do that. So I was fortunate enough. This is something I took from Keith. The four-week turnaround strategy is what I, what I built upon. 
And in four weeks, the ability to actually identify, I can turn this around or I can't, and therefore I need to separate, but I need to do it quickly. So expectations, accountability, conflict, and turnaround. And one of the most important things I learned in this whole process was that all of that is way easier if people actually trust you. If they believe what you're doing is for their best interest and you're going to be candid about it. And so what I call the rules of engagement or conversations about trust and alignment and expectations, accountability, conflict, and turnaround are way easier when there's alignment between what motivates that person and the job they're supposed to do. And then actually trusting that I have their best interests at heart. So those are the five pillars of the course that I built. And that's where it really started was with that curriculum turned into an online course. And that course was great. I had fun selling it. I've learned a lot by doing it. I'm actually reshooting it and now leveling it up to the, the point where it's really ready for an LMS enterprise level, as opposed to me talking over slides with lighting like this. But one of the things, pieces of feedback I got from it, and this is one of those, those broader business lessons I've learned is that getting feedback from your clients quickly and iterating is, is really important. One of the pieces of feedback I got was people who take my course and go, Eric, that was awesome. How do I go use this? There's, there's two and a half hours of stuff in there. I just gave you five pillars and each one of those has four or five lessons around it. Like that's 30-ish some odd things to learn. Most people don't learn that well. Yeah. Like we don't download two and a half hours of stuff and go repeat it. No, how do I practice? Stuff. How do I practice this? Exactly. And so I found myself telling people, well, you need to go try it in your business. And then it struck me in October or so of last year. That's a horrible model. Like that's like telling a professional athlete, eh, you'll figure it out in the game. It's okay. You'll hit the home runs once, once game time comes around. Just wing it. That's not how it works. And leadership is a skill. That's one of the things that I very much believe in. And it's a verbal and an auditory skill. You need to know what to say and what to listen for. And the only way to get good at skills is by practicing them. And so I, I think about it in the same vein as like free throw shooting or putting. You get way better at free throw shooting only by standing at the free throw line and throwing the ball at the hoop. You can watch all the videos you want. You can watch all the basketball or talk about it you want, but the only way to really get good at it and develop muscle memory is to do it. And so I built the Academy, which is a place where people come and practice the stuff from the course. They come in, I give them explicit instruction on one small micro skill piece of the course. And then they do breakout rooms with other leaders to practice it. That way, the time they go use it in their company is not the first time they've ever said it. Yeah, you know, Some people- yeah, we get this we get this belief and this machismo around that ah, when the stakes are high, I rise to the occasion. That's really not true. Most of us shrink to our lowest level of training. And this is an opportunity to level up that training so that when you go hold someone accountable, you're actually good at it before you have to do it that first time. So I built the academy around that concept. And from there, I get one-on-one -on -one in group coaching where, you know, entire executive teams will want to onboard this at a corporate level. And so we'll run a, a micro group of just their team through the course and the academy to build out their culture of using this language. And so I'll, I'll do engagements like that. But that really is the business. It's digital delivery of the online course and the academy that allows me to run ads, speaking to the pain points of, of accountability and conflict and all those things to get people to a webinar where they learn a little bit and go, yeah, actually, you know what? I should change. I do need to change the way I speak and how I hold people accountable in order to get better results. And that's when they can come to the academy or the course to, to practice or learn those skills. That's the business model. Yeah. And the fundamental piece is that you've got to practice. Leadership is a language that needs to be developed. And I'm curious, I mean, you hired a coach who helped you, but how were you able to, to hone the language of leadership for yourself to ultimately be able to build it into all of your yeah. roles. And now this course, like you did have to go and have more of these high risk 
situations implementing it in real life or did was that part of the coaching you were going through what are some real world examples for for your experience yeah yeah i, I mean i was fortunate enough to have keith, keith coaching me through um general best practices for coaching right asking questions before giving answers um sharing challenging observations with people with candor and vulnerability like a lot of best practices that i was able to take away from my time with keith and then i repurposed them around this other question of accountability and that work that i was doing with him tended to be very sales focused it was how to lead mm -hmm. sales people and what i what i found is that every industry struggles with this in fact salespeople sometimes are better at it because at least we're used to talking we're used to using our, our words and listening skills to, to solve problems. Not every industry has that. And so I repurposed a lot of it and took it away in, a, in a, just a different angle. But I did have to struggle through being bad at a lot of these things the first times I did it. And I can think of some, I have one guy in particular I can think of who was super resistant. His name was Mike. He was super re resistant to me trying any of this new stuff. And what it would look like is I just share with him, hey, Mike, I'm, I'm trying to get better as a leader. And so you're going to see me trying a couple new things. I just wanted to, you know, give you a heads up. And every time I would try a new thing, like asking him, how do you want me to hold you accountable to that? Which is a critical piece of, of the course that I teach now, or as I started to bake out the three C's of expectation setting, clarity, confirmation, and commitment. And I would try to get him to confirm what he was doing so that I would hear him say it so that I could then hold him accountable to it. Well, he wouldn't want to do that. He would say things like, Eric, we just talked about it, man. You heard me, right? And there was this level of, of pushback from people because I was trying new things that didn't have a ton of confidence around them yet. And I just had to stumble through them. And sometimes it went well and sometimes it didn't. But the lessons were the times that it did go well, the people who would play in the sandbox with me, I would see wildly different results. And that would motivate me to go back to the mics of the world and push harder next time and say, yeah, I know, I know you just said it, but I'm getting better at this. And I, I don't know that I listened as well as I should have. Could you just, for my sake, repeat what you're going to go do now so that I have a pretty clear expectation of it, right? And I'd have the confidence to do that. And then what I'd find is Mike would go have better results because he'd never been held accountable in that way. So I definitely had to stumble through it. There was a lot of resistance and it took me several years. I probably started building it in 2017. Um, if I go back to when I started applying the ideas and I didn't really formalize it until 2019 and put it in a curriculum until 2020 and turn it into a course until 2022, mm -hmm. I think. So, I mean, it took five years really of trial and error. And my intention with the Academy, especially is it doesn't have to take that long. You can get better at this in days, weeks, yeah. you know, hours of application, just like you can shooting a free throw. You go get a little bit better each and every week. And before you Put know the reps it, in. Well, yeah, it's exactly what it is, right? And where else the leaders practice? We don't have an arena for that. There's not, there's not a putting green for leaders. And that's what I have tried to build with the academies, an opportunity for someone to have that authentic trial time with zero risk so that they can leave with skill and go apply it. And it's been that. a ton of fun, dude. I've been putting green for leaders. I love that analogy. So following my own curiosity rabbit hole, when it comes to personalities like like Mike, what you were trying wasn't jiving with with his personality. So with what you teach, are there different routes to take depending on you know the type of person that you're interacting with, or is that yeah. part of the process where you're identifying that and then you know adapting these steps, the next steps dependent on how yeah. they're best going to receive that that feedback and that accountability. It's it's definitely a little of both. Um, you know, I talk about it as the language of leadership. One of the things people sometimes think is it's going to be overly scripted, 
Mm-hmm. And that's just not how it really works, right? That's not how our natural language develops. It doesn't, we don't do that. We, we take scripts and we modify them for the context. And so just like shooting a free throw, you need that stationary practice to get good at lobbing a ball at a hoop with any consistency. From there, you can develop shooting on the move and crossing somebody over and fadeaways. You develop all these other contextualizations to the use of that fundamental skill, but you needed the free throw or stationary shooting practice to build off of to do that. And so you definitely need some early scripting and practice and saying some things awkwardly the first few times to push through and develop that confidence so that you can modify it. But it's heavily contextual when you really get into it. I mean, people like Mike, who are very, not um, maliciously, but it's just a characteristic of his to resist you trying something different. It's scary. It's new. It's dangerous, yeah, whatever. Change. We don't like change. Yeah, exactly, no. Right? <laughs> And, and there's other people who are, are far more malleable, who are far more ready to play in the sandbox. And you do have to customize that. And that's part of what I teach in the course is this is what it might sound like if you bump into this type of resistance. Yeah. Okay. And what, what I found in each one of those times that I've done that is, is usually there's only two or three different personality types. There's only three or four different types of pe- ways people dodge responsibility. Like, so you can continue to build out the if-then chart, right? You could imagine a flow chart of how to navigate this. And it's not perfectly accurate, but it captures all but the very edge cases. And so as someone really comes to understand and intertwine all the different skills, they'll be able to play in that sandbox well. But at the beginning, you know, sometimes you just have to try it on that person. And when it doesn't work, listen to why, and then talk with me about it, modify it a little bit and come back and try it again. Because the principle is right. It's just the execution or delivery or personality conflict might be tough. Exactly. So I know for me personally, a big part of you know, my professional development and accountability in, in many things is the community that I surround myself with and, and what I speak to that community. And once I speak it, I, I got to hold true to, to my yeah. word. And you're, you're involved. You introduced me actually to a professional development and networking organization here in Bend called mm-hmm. Opportunity Knox. And I'm curious, can you share a bit about what Opportunity Knox is and the value you see in joining a community that that holds you accountable and pushes you to reach new heights. It doesn't have to be opportunity knocks, but no, that's that's a great one, right? We we had a board meeting today, so it's fresh on fresh on the mind. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to join the board for Opportunity Knocks in November. And Opportunity Knocks is a peer mentorship group for business owners and leaders. The idea being it's sometimes very lonely at the top. You know, there are challenges and problems you face as a solopreneur or CEO or executive at an organization that you frankly won't want to come home and share with your spouse or significant other or best friends, right? When you're having struggle to hit payroll, when you don't know where your next dollars are coming from, when you've got a tax liability issue, when you've got something embarrassing going on in churn or whatever, like, who do you talk to about those things? Unless you're fortunate enough to have a natural network of other business leaders who are very vulnerable with you, it's pretty tough. But that's what Opportunity Knocks is. It's a chance to get in a room in a confidential space with people who are sometimes in the same vertical as you, sometimes similar leadership position as you, depending on competition or whatever, and be able to be very vulnerable and candid and say, look, I'm really struggling with this issue. And to hear from other people how they've navigated it both logistically or tactically, but also emotionally you know, spiritually to some regard, how they weathered those storms. Sometimes you just need someone to say, you'll get through this, who actually knows what they're talking about. And Opportunity Knocks tends to be an op- like something for all of those different needs that we have. So our members meet for uh, usually four to six hours every month for their, their one-on-one meeting. It's a very um, committed time. It's a, something that we honor and make sure our team members really give to because you get that type of camaraderie and value out of it. And 
the, to your point in your question, that community piece of accountability is really important. You mentioned the critical piece to it. One of the fundamental pieces and things that I learned is when you say what you're going to do, you're far more likely to do it than when you're told what you're going to do, even if it's by your boss. And so you've naturally picked up that tendency that if I socialize a commitment, I'm far more likely to do it. In fact, at some point, it becomes really unlikely that you're not going to do it because you just you do that enough times and you develop this accountability and this sense of responsibility, especially if you care about the people you've socialized it to, that you're going to follow through. And what it really means is like in that crucible moment, that moment where you're frustrated by it, or you had built out all the things and lost the file and you have to go do it all again, or you just lose confidence that your strategy is even a good one. Like in those moments, those crucible moments where you were going to quit or you lacked the skill you don't quit because dang it, I told Bob I'm going to do it. And now I need to go do Gosh, it. Gosh darn it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Or like, all right, I guess I'm going to go watch four more YouTube videos on how to navigate Excel to get the thing done. I need to get done. And like, you just, you find that grit to push through by socializing it to people. And so opportunity knocks is a great opportunity for that. And socializing what you say you're going to do, socializing your commitments is a really valuable lo-fi, low-pro, low-tech way to help yourself be accountable. Um, And if you're in a group like that, it means you have the opportunity to help other people be accountable. And where they tend to intertwine for me and why I'm so excited about it is like, it's really helpful because people are more accountable, but there's still times when they're not. And what do we do in those moments? How do we help that person recognize that challenge that they face so that they can overcome it next time, right? Because a lot of holding people accountable is developing their skill. It's forward-looking, productive, positive skill, not this negative shame-infused thing a lot of us were raised with it thinking it meant. And so Opportunity Knocks is a natural fit for me because I get to work with business leaders all the time who struggle with those moments, either in their own companies or in their teams of, hey, this person socialized it. How do I follow up with them? What do I say? What words do I use to remind them knowing all the context of their life and they don't owe me anything because they're not my employee, they're not in my company. How do I still help that person be accountable? And so it's a natural fit for me. I love what Opportunity Knox is doing and uh, peer mentorship in general is a really healthy skill. We don't tend to have that very well naturally. We tend to socialize around water cooler or college or shared experience people. If you can create yourself a little group of people who are struggling with the same things, it becomes a lot easier to develop that type of mentorship and camaraderie. Yeah, I love that. And I'll definitely be checking it out. But for people that maybe don't have access to something like that, you can do this on a micro level. For example, like my wife has somebody that she meets with in the UK, believe it or not, and they meet every week just for that very purpose. Here's what I'm working on this week. Here's what I will accomplish next week. Here are some obstacles that I know are going to get in my way or some yep. things that that happened throughout this week. And then, you know, they re- just revisit it week, yeah. week in, week out. And they've been doing this for two years and it's been a game changer for her. So it could be with one person that you have never met yeah. in person, you meet virtually on Zoom or, you know, a more formal structure like Opportunity Knocks. But it's a tremendous, tremendous thing to to take advantage of. Yeah, it really is. Look, you can definitely pay coaches a lot of money or take courses or academies. But look, if you want more accountability in your life, develop that person and then bake out some rules of engagement. And what I mean by rules of engagement is like, if you and I were doing that, you'd make your commitments to me. And then I would want to ask you, how do you want me to hold you accountable to that? That's me asking for permission to inject myself into your business, your life, to check in on the process or whatever it was. Do you want me to check in, send you a text every morning? You know, what, what does that look like? And then TJ, if you don't do that thing, 
what would you like me to do? How do you want me to handle the situations where you don't deliver on that, right? Do you need a swift kick in the ass? Because sometimes people do. Or do you need consolation? Do you need me to emotionally support you? Do you need me to challenge you to go develop the skill that you were deficient in? Like you could name anything you want because I, I don't have a commitment to the outcome. I'm disconnected from what, what you do or don't. But when you aren't accountable, what would you like me to do about that? And that's fundamental in my course, but it can be really powerful one-on-one with those two questions to really empower somebody else to one, be more accountable because they said it, and then to know what to do to support that person through those times when they aren't, because that's how they get better at things. Love it. That's awesome. Your wife has that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is really cool. Something that I've done on different levels. I have kind of a weekly press conference with some of my uh, colleagues at Height, other mm-hmm. Height franchise owners. And, you know, we do the same thing. We meet, we call it a press conference. It's kind of like following the format of, you know, post game with the coach, like what went well, what got in the way. Yeah. And, you know, they just ask questions of me and we each go around turn by turn and just kind of dig deeper into, okay, what are you trying to accomplish? What's going to get in the way yeah. so that I speak it into existence. They're not just giving me the advice they're trying to tease out and, and get me to say what, what they're thinking or, or what yeah. ultimately would help move me along towards my goal. So, well, and that's, that's, that's a great example of a, of a structural focus on how we, how on accountability, right. And systems like EOS, and there's a ton of other business systems that are really good for building in structure, meaning you host this meeting, you ask these questions, you do this prep so that leaders are more proactive about these things. And I love those systems because they solve one of the most basic problems about why we don't hold people accountable is we're just not freaking organized enough to do it very well. And we don't remember all the commitments people made. And so those are really, again, often low cost, low-fi, low-tech ways that you can do that by absorbing any one of those systems. And I love them because selfishly, my business fits really well into them. Great. You have a good system. That's going to do so much. And you're going to be 50% more accountable. Awesome. In that other 50%, what do you say? <laughs> like, what words do you use in those moments? And so I'm a big fan of pairing up with systems like that because they just go so hand in hand. I kind of consider it the last mile problem of those, those organizational systems, Like The last mile problem of package delivery for Amazon is the ne- nemesis of it. And it tends to be that the last mile, the last one-on-one conversation you have with someone who didn't do what they said they're going to do is the unsolved mystery of these organizations and systems and books and processes all of them are really healthy and good, but you still have to have some conversation when somebody doesn't do that thing. And again, I selfishly like it because it doesn't exclude my business. It actually enhances it. So no, that's chance. just pouring gasoline onto the fire, making it 10X. Yeah, you're already committed to it. Great. Let's yeah. make you a little bit better at it. So digging a little deeper down the accountability rabbit hole, in your experience, are there any common misconceptions about accountability you see people getting wrong? And how can we shift our perspective to, to really unlock the true power of accountability amongst our people, our teams? Yeah. Great question. Um, definitely one of them. And the first and easiest one is that some people consider accountability, a four letter bad word. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've noticed that people in my generation and younger, I'm 38, don't tend to have the, the, uh, best relationship with the concept or the word accountability. We have a very negative guilt is, or shame yeah, it's got a negative feeling around it, right? Whereas I can say confidently from my dad, there was a pride in that. There was a, right? It, there was a, yeah, he, kicked, he, he held me accountable and I got better because like there was just this grit and use to it. So I, I just find that we tend to have a negative connotation around what it means because it's been guilt and shame and, and 
finger wagging or yelling induced and or experienced. And it isn't. And I'll, I'll show you how to make the difference or what changed things for me. We tend to think of accountability as a very binary thing. Either the person did the thing or they didn't do the thing. When I, when I went on my tour of asking people about accountability, almost everybody boiled down when I asked them, what is accountability? What's it mean to be accountable? Almost everybody got to the point where they would just say, a person who does what they said they're going to do. Yeah. That's our definition typically of accountability. And if we think of it that way, it becomes very limiting what our tools are because what if they didn't? Well, they didn't. It's too late. One, because we waited until they did or they didn't do the thing. So we're already too late to do anything to positively impact it along the way. So that's troubling. And I struggled with that as a leader a lot. Why do I wait until the outcome when I can see the process breakdowns along the way? Mm-hmm. And and also it really limits us because what do you say? Like the person didn't do it. The natural things people say is why not? And when can I get it from you? Those are the two most common follow-ups when someone doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And that creates defensiveness. It gives people an opportunity to say, oh, my, my dog had this issue or I, I computer crap. Like, there's just all of the outs. Opportunity all of the get out of jail free cards are there. Yeah. And so I had to really change the way I think about accountability in order to allow it to flourish into a positive forward-looking thing, which is what I help people build into their culture and the way they think about it. And the definition change is fundamental to that. If accountability is doing what you say you're going to do, I wanted to add the element of, well, what, what happens when they don't? What does a fully accountable person do when they can't do the thing that they said they're going to do. And I use that word can't a little loosely, but I, I led a sales team that sold into a long sales cycle construction industry where sometimes jobs would just disappear. Funding would go away. And they'd say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close $250,000 in business this quarter. And two thirds of their jobs went away due to economic factors. But how do I hold that person accountable? Like all I've got are guilt and shame. And why didn't you find a different way? And so I had to change the way I thought about it. So here's what my definition of is accountability. And this is why I think we can pivot it to something that's positive and not negative uh, guilt or shame inducing. I think an accountable person does what they say they're going to do. And when they can't, they do some other things. They proactively communicate it to stakeholders. They take a look in the mirror and do their best to self-diagnose the nature of their myths. And then they solve for the future. Meaning they would come to you ahead of time and say, TJ, I can't get that report to you on Friday. And they would do that on Tuesday instead of Thursday afternoon or Friday morning. And by doing that, what that allows for is this acknowledgement that a lot of times when people say, I can't do something, it means I don't know how. I don't have the skill or the grit to push through this commitment barrier that I'm bumping into. And if I have an opportunity to influence that, I can help that person solve that problem, meaning next time they'll be a little bit more resilient. And this time they might actually deliver on it. So that proactive stakeholder communication is number one that I want them to do. And then I want them to own a little bit of looking in the mirror and going, why did I fail? You know, and I use that word failure a little loosely. Sometimes that's too harsh for the situation, but in general, like what got in the way, it's a skill issue. A lot of times, like I procrastinated, I had poor time management practices. I didn't know how to use the application. I opened the file too late. Like there's, I can only, there's like 10 or 15 things people say that really get in the way if we boil it down that they didn't know how to do. And I want to encourage that person to try to look in the mirror and figure out what happened? Where did that skill break down? And then I want them to say, well, now that I know that's a problem, here's what I can do to fix it next time. So if I think about accountability in that way, the misconception that it's negative stems from it being this binary thing where I don't have any tools at my disposal when you're not accountable. And therefore I have nothing but guilt or shame or do better next time in me to really throw at you. 
But if I pivot my thinking to there is something a person can do to be fully accountable, even when they can't deliver on the thing they were supposed to do, and that's my expectation, I can help them through that. They can come to me earlier or seek resources earlier. They can develop the skills. We can identify gaps in their skill that I can help them through or point them to resources towards. And as a leader, this is what means I don't have to slam my forehead into the same freaking problem every single time with Bob or Jane or whoever. I can get them off that hamster wheel of consistently failing in the same way by holding them accountable through that. So conception number one is that it's negative. Conception number two is that it's this simple binary construct. And when we put those two together, we change our script a little bit. Accountability is a really positive forward-looking thing. If I'm holding you accountable, I'm going to make it serious, but I'm not interested in you feeling negative or coming up with a reason to make excuses. I'm interested in opening you up as much as I can so that you'll take a look and go, oh, I can do that better next time. And I'd go, cool. How do we help you get better at that next time? And now can you go apply that so you can get this thing done too? Like you'll notice my tonality is positive. My energy is good about this. If we're having conflict, we're in a very different tonality and cadence. But if we're accountable, holding you accountable, man, it's all about how do you do better at this next time? And not just I'll try harder, boss. No, specifically, what are you going to do differently? Is it going to go in your calendar at a different time? Are you going to give it more time in the calendar? Are you going to research what you need to do ahead of time? Like there's only four or five things a person needs to change to do better at most skills. And if we think about that as our primary job as leaders is to develop people, I really think that's one of the other critical misconceptions. My job as a leader is not to do your job for you. It's to help you be the best you can at that thing, to unlock your potential and keep you aligned with the mission of the organization. And so if I'm holding you accountable, my whole intention is to make you better. Most people want to be better. Like we don't naturally resist that. We do it because of the way people have tried to hold us accountable in the past. So if I change the words that I use, I'm going to be better at this process and make accountability a positive thing for my people. And then they want it. And I, I lived that. I saw that from my team. And I see that from so many leaders that I coach that those would be some fundamental changes we can make to the way we think about accountability. That's awesome. Development and empowerment at the end. Definitely. Of the yeah. I mean, so, you, you run a company, right? You want people to yeah. be better at this stuff than you are. Like the whole idea is that you're the worst at executing everything in your organization, because that means you've got rock stars. Like that's what we exactly. all really want if we're honest. And we've got to build in that direction. You're not going to hire in that direction. That's impossible. So you got to build the talent around you and empowering them is the way to get there. 100%. So you mentioned something before this conversation that really struck home to me. And that was that the people closest to you shouldn't get your leftovers. And sadly, Mm -hmm. I, I think this is something that is more common than not, both in entrepreneurs, but also just busy people in general. So I'm, I'm curious, and, and I always ask this question, what does living a, a well-rounded life look like for you? And how do you prioritize doing the things that bring you joy with the people that you care about most while actually showing up as your best and, and most present self? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, th- I think it's a really deep, fun thing to talk about. I mean, I know for me, I learned really good schedule control at a young age, again, running that franchise in college. And I had a very crazy schedule in life at that point, meant I had to get good at controlling my calendar. And once I did that, I had some people in my life make the comment that I controlled my calendar really well, but I sure gave everything I had to everything else that was on my calendar, except for them. These were important people in my life. And I, I really took that to heart at a young age. And it, they gave me that, that tool of, you know, don't give me your leftovers, right? If I really matter, like give me some of the A energy as well. Mm-hmm. And so calendar control is my first answer. Like when I left my old company, and I went from having to lead a bunch of other people and really setting my own schedule. I naturally fell into the wake up and check emails, start getting stuff done, and then shift gears into dad mode. 
and like hustle through getting my kids ready and getting them to school and then be full-time working and then go get them and then turn work back on. And I realized, why am I doing that? Like, it was a very, it was only like a week or two of me doing that before I realized time out. Like I get to build my own company. What do I really want this thing to be? Like, let's go build what I want and not be limited by what I think is possible. And so now what it means to me is I don't take any meetings usually before 8.15 in the morning so I can drop my kids off. I really don't look at my email or Slack or any of my communication tools outside of text uh, first thing in the morning beforehand, just because I know I'm not going to do anything with them. And if I do look at it, I'm probably going to start thinking about it. And then I'm not going to be present on the 17 minute drive to take my kids to school. And that's a really powerful time in their lives. I really want to be a part of that. So so I don't schedule anything too early in the morning. So I can always do drop-offs if I want to. My wife does a lot of them, but I do too. And I, I don't ever want to interfere with that. And then I'm usually done working by two. I mean, today I'm not. And occasionally I take some meetings later in the day, but most of the time I can be off at two o'clock in the afternoon so that I can go and get my kids and be fully present. And we work out the shares so I can do some stuff later here and there. But for the most part, it means that I prioritize, in fact, over-prioritize protecting time. And if I can't take a meeting this week that I'd really like to take, that means that person has to wait a week. And you know, sometimes you find yourself in a revenue pinch and it's, you got to take that meeting and all right, cool. You, yeah, you can always, times, you can always but adapt. Like, yeah. Adapt the, the rules point. when needed. The point is that you start from a place of, I'm going to protect my time to do the things that really matter to me the most. And whatever I have left from there, that's where I'm going to go apply myself to making money and building the company and pursuing my passions. And I'm fortunate in that I'm in an industry where I can do that. I can be very flexible and my deliverable isn't something that takes eight to 10 hours of individual time for me to go create. But I also chose this industry for a reason, you know, so I self-selected into a place where I could not give anybody leftovers. And that's, that's what it means for me. Yeah. I think the, the intentionality behind it, building what you want, designing the life, the business that you ultimately want here and now, not just to reap the rewards later. I see so many people caught up in, in hustle culture and, and grinding it out. And I think that I mean, just the celebration of that, of the hustle culture leads far too many people to burn out, not realize their full potential. And yeah. for those that do grind it out to the top, like what is, what is the cost? Who did they lose touch with along the way? What experiences did they miss out on while they were young and capable of anything? Like what was it all for? Right. And I think yeah. that, that what you teach may just be the thing, the very thing that would enable so many people to get off the hamster wheel of grinding day in and day out and actually empowering the people around them to do the work that they are hired to do. So I guess my question there is like, where can people tap into what you teach and start practicing the skills that will enable them to regain their time, improve their accountability and ultimately develop their people through empowerment? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the resources that I have at my disposal are obviously the course and the academy, and you can find me on LinkedIn or on a post page. I'm guessing that TJ, you'll put up for a link yeah. so people could find that stuff them. there. But you know, that I think you're right, and that that connection is there, and it isn't just for the individual, the leader who can get their time back. If you make people better at their jobs, they'll get their time back too. You want more happy employees? They have the same conundrum of giving their B time to their families, and if you make them better help them improve their skills, they get that time back too. And it really does trickle down. I saw that so much in my previous company where the leaders who I looked up to, at least in the hierarchy of the company, did not live lives I wanted to live. And that wasn't necessarily because of any moral discrepancy we held. It was just, they were on the road 250 days a year. And I wanted, I didn't want that for my family or they, 
had to have be out three nights a week. I didn't want that. Some people do great. Good on you. But like, I think for most people, especially if you have committed other people in your lives, like that gets old pretty quick. And if you don't develop different skills, you're going to struggle with that hustle and grind all the time. There's something to be admired about somebody who puts on the work and goes and cranks it out 60 hours a week every week because they take care of their family. Don't get me wrong. No, yeah, but there's no also something, but there's also something to be admired about someone who says, you know what, I'm going to figure out how to not have to do that anymore. And that they go and do that too. So there's, there can be an appreciable respect for either. You know, you asked that question that don't leave your, or don't uh, give people your leftovers. Another good resource that's fun to reference that I like to tell people about is there's this essay, this guy named Tim Kreider wrote, and it's called Lazy, a Manifesto. You can throw it up on YouTube. You'll find it right away. It's about a 15, 17 minute reading of an essay that he wrote for one of his books that I really like. And that blew my mind on a treadmill in Tualatin, Oregon. And it set the course for a lot of the changes that my wife and I made in our lives because I won't elaborate too much. It doesn't have anything to do with the words leftovers, but it has this concept or narrative of how busy we make ourselves and how self, well, he would probably call it self-flagellating that is, um, that we do that out of some sense of ego. And it really just confronted me at a time in my life where I needed to hear, you know, a lot of what you're doing and being busy about that you go tell people, I'm so busy isn't aligned with the things you really want in your life or reflective of your values. And so that was a big, another big thing that steered me in that direction. Yeah. I forget what, what brought that to my attention. It might've been Allie, probably was Allie, but yeah, just, Oh, how was your day? Oh, I was really busy. It was really busy. Like we celebrate the word busy when it's yeah. actually, it is such a terrible thing. So I've been very intentional. Just like, that is not a word that I use in that context anymore. It's like, Oh, my day was full. Maybe my, my day yeah. was productive. My day was hard, <laughs> but, yeah. but busy is not, not the word I choose to use anymore. So yeah, as we, as we move to wrap up here, Eric, I have a choose your own adventure question for you. So you can pick which one you'd like or answer both if you so choose, but what was a favorite place you visited in the past few years or ever, or what is a, a recent adventure that you went on with your family? And in either case, what was it like? What made it so memorable, a favorite meal or drink lesson learned? Yeah. Give us, give us a story. We've got a couple. Um, I want to tell, I'll tell two if that's okay. They'll both be short. So on spring break uh, this year, we went down to Palm Springs and my my family and I've traveled a decent amount, but it's always been with our other families, right? I've got brothers and sisters and so does my wife and they have kids and our families are close. And so we've been very fortunate. We've traveled with good sized groups. This was our first trip aside from like a short beach weekend where just the four of us went somewhere for a week. And we went to Palm Springs. We stayed at a cool hotel, did the pool thing. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So we did a lot of coloring and watching cartoons and stuff too. But we went to the zoo in Palm Springs and it was unbelievably awesome. It was the coolest zoo I've ever been to. Our girls fed the giraffe. They just, it was such a neat experience. You're walking around in part of it and there's wallabies like next to you, like not in cages, like they're just wandering around the space with you. And so you're it was just such a cool way to be integrated in this experience. My daughters loved it. We wandered around for like four hours at this place. And that was the, it's hard to, hard to call anything the highlight. That trip was pretty great, but that was one of the most memorable pieces of it because it was so different and interactive and so special to just be the four of us and nobody else's agenda or commitments or anything. And that was pretty cool. I really enjoyed that one. And then the second story I'll tell, um, this was a while ago. My wife and I are celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year, and this was on our honeymoon. Yeah. So this was a decade ago. But we took a, for our honeymoon, we took a cruise from Athens to Istanbul and we had a blast and we stopped on uh, Mykonos, uh, one of the islands in Greece there. 
And we rented a scooter that day, a little two-person scooter and zipped all over the island. And we had no idea how to ride the scooter. And so we almost dumped it a few times. Fortunately, we didn't. But we had this so funny fun. experience because we're newlyweds, right? We're on our way and I'm driving my wife around on this scooter and we're going to this place called Paradise Beach. And on the way there, we see a sign to a place called Super Paradise Beach. So we're like, ooh, that sounds kind of neat. Yeah. So we go to Paradise Beach. It was kind of cool. We we're like, you know, let's go see what Super about. Super see what Paradise. Super's all about. Next level. Gotta go check it out. So we take this gorgeous ride through this, you know, Greek island countryside and rolling hills and all that fun stuff. And we come up over this bluff and down below us, this very steep hill is Super Paradise Beach. And we're like, all right, we're here. Let's go check it out. So we go down this hill, right? And she's holding on to me. And what I don't tell her until the bottom is that I have my feet completely pressed against the brakes and we are not slowing down. Like no. Yeah. There was, if someone had stopped, we were going to slam into them. We had no ability to stop. This vehicle was not going to do it. I didn't tell her that till the bottom. And she kind of chuckled scarily and whatever. We went to Super Paradise Beach. It was fine. We didn't enjoy it as much as Paradise Beach, if I'm honest. But the funny part of this story is that we now had to take this little two-person scooter back up this steep hill. And it was a big steep hill. And we're on our honeymoon. And my wife has no idea how to drive this scooter and is very uncomfortable trying to do it. Yep. So the only choice was for me to drive the scooter to the top of the hill and make her walk up the entire thing, oh, no. which is not exactly what you want to do on your honeymoon, like day four or whatever. Uh, she was not amused. We got through it and it's actually pretty hilarious together now, yes. but the idea of making your wife walk up a really steep hill because you can't take Sorry, her out babe. the <laughs> is, yeah. that was That was a pretty funny story that I like to share about some of the adventures we've had. Yeah. Great memories, man. Great memories. Um, Cool. Well, what ask, challenge, or or parting advice do you have for for anyone listening before we wrap up? And and I ask where people can find you on socials and all that fun yeah. stuff. Yeah, and my hope is that people would take away kind of a message of their own empowerment. These problems or feelings that you have about leading people don't have to be that way. And sure. the solution that I've found, not the only solution by any stretch, but the solution that I've found, and and even potentially the last mile, if you are already implementing some great systems is to really focus on what you say and what you listen for and acknowledge that leadership is a language. It's a skill of its own. And in order to get good at it, you're gonna to need to practice it. Whether it's at my resources or something else that you find, if you just acknowledge that the problem you're bumping into, the hamster wheel you're feeling, the grind that you have, the frustration with this person isn't permanent or just a natural installation in what it means to be a leader, there are ways out of it. And it's pretty fun when you get to the other side because you can work less and make more. And have a lot of fun empowering other people as a leader, which is the best part of running a company in my business, in my opinion. So that would be my words of wisdom. You can do differently. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure TJ will be able to attach a, a link to this to check out some of the other content that I have. And dude, thanks for just having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. Oh, dude, thank you. And we'll we'll drop everything in the show notes for everyone listening. Links to the language of leadership, which I will certainly be checking out and, and jumping on board with and social media, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. So thank you, Eric. Cool. Appreciate your time, man. This was value packed and have a great night. Yeah, you too. Thanks, buddy. See you later. To all of our adventurous listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe, download, and share this on social media or with someone you know will get some value from it. Leaving a review goes a long way in helping people find the show. And I personally appreciate reading them when they come in. So please go drop one if you have the time. We'll see you all next week. And remember, whether we're talking about business or the things that bring us joy outside of work, life is meant for exploring. So go out there and live it one adventure at a time.